0: We're going to be looking at Psalm 62 this morning. Let's stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word. Psalm 62, the message I call a sermon to the soul. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. I'm going to read that again. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. May God bless the reading of his word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Our message this morning will consider a time when the psalmist preached a message to his own soul. Uh, now, some of you, like me, might be inclined. If you just watch somebody occasionally, you might see them uh, when it seems like they're talking to themselves. If you ever see me when I'm talking to myself, more than likely, I'm preaching to myself. My kids learned that early on in life. That happened uh, a lot. Uh, they'd walk around and you'd say, well, you get up here and preach a sermon to us. I can assure you, you'll never hear a sermon preached in this pulpit uh, from me uh, that I didn't preach first to myself. The psalmist was doing that. It may seem a little bit out of place since, after all, the psalms were songs. But then as now, many of our songs are simply messages, sermons that are put into poetic form and then ultimately set to music. And when we set something to music, it gives it a power that is even greater than the mere spoken word. Uh, We all know that. I've never really understood my own fascination with music. I can't look back in my life and remember a time when that fascination was not there. Unfortunately, my brain does not seem to distinguish well between the sacred and the secular. Uh, I grew up singing the old hymns from our old ABA Red Hymnal. And uh, I have all of those, many of those committed to memory. And uh, they have been there my whole life. And I fully expect them to be there until I die. I'll remember them as long as I can remember anything. But then I also remember Jeremiah was a bullfrog. (laughs) Was a good friend of mine. So I could sing that, and I could sing There's Power in the Blood. I could do either one of them equally as well in a whole bunch of country music. You know, it just, it all gets in there. I can't really understand or contemplate what goes on in anybody else's mind. I don't know if your mind works that same way, but I know mine does. Uh, When I can set something to music, uh, I can remember it better. It just seems like it just gives it a direct path into my brain, into my memory, and yes, into my heart. And if we sing them often, they stay with us forever. It shouldn't surprise us, then, that David and many others in Scripture that wrote the Psalms uh, were setting their messages to music, things that they thought of, things that moved them, things that stirred their hearts, things, yes, sometimes that convicted them, they Set them to music. I don't know if any of the rest of you have this problem, but I get songs stuck in my head sometimes that I can't turn off. Does anybody else have that one? Oh my goodness. And it's not so bad until you're trying to go to sleep at night and you can't get the thing to shut off. It just keeps going in your head. I, I don't know how. That's the power of music. Words set to music go to the brain, go to the heart. One of the great things about singing is it doesn't require an audience. Sometimes you can sing worship and praise to Almighty God. When the only one around to hear it is you and him. Songs of praise to God. And yes, sometimes we can sing a message to our own soul. I can picture the psalmist sitting out on the hills of Judea in his early life. With uh, the sheep, Uh, maybe uh, he's leading them along and singing a song. Maybe he's sitting up on a hillside watching them as they contentedly graze below in a pasture. And he begins to sing those sweet psalms, the songs of Israel. You may not be called of God to preach a sermon. You may never stand in front of an audience and speak a message. You may never really even sing a message to someone else. But whether it's set to music or whether it's just spoken, you can and should preach a song to your own soul, a message, a sermon. To your soul, you see. Sometimes we find ourselves preaching to our faces. Now, well, all right, square your shoulders, pull your bootsteps up, put a smile on your face, act like everything's okay. We're so good at it. We've even coined a phrase for it: uh, "Just fake it till you make it." Put a smile on. Come on, face. There's no such sophistry going on with the psalmist. He goes directly to the soul. Remember Jesus said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The countenance is directly tied to the soul. And when our soul is full of joy, our face is going to show it. Our our face will follow. Our steps will follow. Our attitude, our perspective, it all flows from the soul. And so there's times when he Speaks about his soul many, many times if you read the Psalms. Over and over again, perhaps most famously, Psalm 23 and 3, he said, He restoreth my soul. You see, he's talking about his soul. But then there's many other passages, including this one today, where he speaks directly to his own soul. Psalm 42, he asks his soul a question. And actually, this is repeated in several other Psalms. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. Over and over again, he preaches this refrain to his soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. There are many others. For the sake of time this morning, we'll, we'll move on. The psalmist knew that there were times when he needed to speak God's truth to his own soul. Perhaps nowhere, though, more significantly than in Psalm 62. Where our passage today begins with this powerful declaration. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Then it's later when he turns that into a command. That's a declaration. You see, my soul waiteth upon God. Now it's an exclusive command. My soul wait thou only. Upon God. Most of the time when we read the word wait. We think of those excruciating times. That we spend on hold. For example. Don't you just love that. In a waiting room. Waiting room. Yeah don't you just love those. Standing in line. Mm. Stuck in traffic. Oh i tell you what, the other day I tried to go to big Walmart, and I think it took me 30 minutes to get through those four red lights up there. By the time I finally got through, I was half tempted just to keep on driving, turn left, and go to Jacksonville. Just I didn't, but I thought about it. The weight that we see so often in Scripture is more than that. It speaks of giving God our attention and our service. In a in another bygone era, if you went out to eat and went to a restaurant, uh, you would be served your food by someone who was called a waiter or a waitress. Don't hear that much anymore. You see, it was their task to serve you, to be attentive to you, to watch you, to... Supply uh, what you might require. To wait on the Lord then is more than just like we're waiting for Him to do something. Whether patiently or impatiently. It is to be attentive to Him. To be watchful toward Him. To have our minds and hearts focused on Him. To wait upon the Lord. This concept is extolled over and over and again, perhaps most famously in Isaiah 40 and 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. In this sermon, then, to the soul, we see the psalmist mention several aspects of this waiting only, only on the Lord. And we can certainly see that going back where God told them that there is only one God and Him only He said, shalt thou serve. Wait only upon the Lord. So we'll see, first of all, that we wait on the Lord in expectation. We wait only on the Lord, verse 5, for my expectation is from Him. There are many things that we can devote ourselves to in life that will prove to be disappointing. We may find ourselves seeking after wealth, but then find that wealth... Uh, leaves us unsatisfied. The Bible talks about he that loveth silver will not be satisfied with silver. We may seek after fame, and yet when we find fame, it's, it's really not that satisfying. We might glory in athleticism, but find out even athleticism can leave us disappointed. We may seek after love and romance, but find that disappointing. Human history is full of examples of people, and our own personal experience is full of examples of times when we've gone after something that seemed incredible only to be disappointed. I once thought that my life would be greatly improved by the (laughs) Tilt-A-Whirl. My mother, you see, would not let me ride the Tilt-A-Whirl even though I was tall enough and we didn't even have much of those things back then. But I was tall enough, big enough. No, you're not going to get on that thing. What a disappointment. I'm just kind of funning with you a little bit today. I really didn't think my life was going to be greatly improved by the tilt of whirl, but you know how it is. You get something in your mind, you think, this is going to be great, and then it's not. God is an unending source of delight when we delight ourselves in Him. No man who devotes himself to God, no woman who devotes herself to God will end up with a life consumed in bitter disappointment saying, I wish that I would have spent more time sinning. Nobody does that. Yes, there are times when God may not do what we hope that He would do. We can't always explain that. I can't understand it. We're not even asked to. God just tells us, my ways aren't your ways. These are my thoughts, your thoughts. And as the old poet said, even when we cannot trace his hand, we can trust God's heart. We know God loves us. And we know that he is doing what is best for us and what is best for his glory. We know that he has A plan even when we can't see all that. I'm not going to say that we might not be disappointed with things that God does or that God doesn't do. But we'll never ever be disappointed in Him. I'm preaching to somebody this morning who's feeling right now the bitter sting of disappointment. It might have been with a relationship that didn't work out the way you planned. It might have been with a job that you thought was going to be there that's just not. It might have been with some investment that you thought was going to be wonderful and it soured on you. You're feeling the bitter sting of disappointment. And when you do, you need to preach a sermon to your soul. Because if nothing else happens through this, you have been reminded that the things of this world will not ultimately satisfy the longing of our soul. But there is one who always will. And even in our bitter times of disappointment, we can look to Him. And so we wait only for the Lord because, He says, my expectation is from Him. Then we wait only for the Lord because He's the source of our support and stability. He calls it my rock. He calls it my rock. He only is my rock. Verse 6. There are times, especially in Scripture, when God is spoken of as a rock in the sense of a pillar to uphold us. As a source of strength and stability. We all do indeed need somebody, someone to lean on. We grew up extolling the virtues of the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And one of the reasons why that parable of Jesus is so deeply ingrained in all of us is because we set it to music, of course, and we sing it to our souls from the time where this old wise man built his house upon the rock. And when the rains came up and the floods came down, the house on the rock stood firm. Uh, Because it was supported by the rock. It had strength. It had stability. We need that in our lives. And aren't you glad that when we need that strength and we need that stability, we can look to the incredible, mighty God of the universe. Job extolled him in Job 26 and 7 when he said, God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Science has taught us about gravity and atmosphere. But remember, it was God who created both those things. Long before science was able to explain anything about it, just generations of God's people looked up at the sky and they said, I wonder why it doesn't fall down on us. Stretch from sky to sky, there's not a pillar inside anywhere look at the stars and wonder, how are those stars held in place? Guess what? After all these generations, science still wonders. See, the stars follow their courses. We know that. Their best theory these days involves something called dark energy and dark matter because the stars are far too far away from each other to exert any gravitational influence on each other so that they would and be held in place in those galactic spirals that we've all learned to know and consider so beautiful. But it's not gravity. They, they, they really have no explanation for what holds them together and what keeps them following their courses dark matter they say dark energy yet for all this time they never been able to go out and get a bucket of that stuff and bring it back they think it has to be there I'll give you another uh, another reason why the stars are held in place the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ it, by him, all things are created. And by him, all things consist. That is, all things are held together. Jesus is the power that holds the universe together. Generations of people have looked to Polaris. It's always in the north. Do you, north? If you know where to find it tonight, you can go out there and look at it. It'll be north. You'll never see Polaris suddenly over there in the west. Mm-mm. It's been due north for generation after generation after generation after generation. It'll be due north for as long as God keeps it there. When we find ourselves in a need of support or strength, maybe we've looked to our friends and haven't found anything. Maybe we've looked to our spouse and haven't found anything. Maybe we've looked to our other loved ones, our family, our parents. Uh, Maybe they have not uh, given us the strength or the stability that we wanted. And so we find ourselves in need of strength. And who am I going to depend on? What's going to hold me up? What's going to get me through this? It is time for us then in that moment to preach to our soul. And say, our soul, our God rather, is our rock. He is dependable. Though I have applied this to the stars, I could just as easily apply it to the stones. That's what the psalmist did. Have you ever looked at those amazing outcrops of rock and wondered how long they've been there? Generation after generation after generation. God. God is my rock. We preach to our souls then in expectation because God does not disappoint. We preach to our souls then for strength because God is dependable. He will sustain us. We preach to our souls then for salvation. Verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. And verse 7, in God is my salvation. This is a vital passage for our understanding, for our eternal destiny itself. Is at stake. I'm talking about heaven or hell this morning. He only is my rock and my salvation. That means God only is my salvation. Humanity has had from time immemorial a tendency to place its faith on something we can touch, something we can do, something we can perform, something that we can see with our eyes. Many then speak of salvation in terms of their baptism. Well, I was baptized. But you know, baptism is not in this passage at all. He only is my salvation. In God is my salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. I don't want to diminish the role of baptism at all as a picture of our faith. But faith must first be there. That was greatly demonstrated in Acts chapter 8 when Philip said to the Ethiopian, when he said, what keeps me from being baptized? We've got some water here. And Philip responded, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he confessed, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He believed. He was baptized. The Bible teaches believers baptism, not infant baptism. Baptism. The Bible teaches us then that you're not baptized in order to be saved, but baptized because you are saved. See, from time immemorial, we've tended to look at something that we can do, something tangible, something physical. But here is a passage that tells us, all the way back in the Old Testament, that God alone, God only, is the source of our salvation. In God is my salvation. Salvation is not in the church. The church has no salvation to give you. We don't. We can preach the gospel to you because Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we can preach the gospel to you, but this church can't save you. We can't vote to do it. We can't do it. Only Jesus can save you. That's why the passage tells us. And God alone and God only is our salvation. Some might look to the Eucharist as they would call it. The Lord's Supper. That's just another way of making the church the author of our salvation. But again, what do we see in the passage? He alone, He only is my rock. He only is my salvation. Salvation is not dependent on our works It's not depending on us doing good things. Salvation is dependent on trusting or believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He only is my salvation. And just in case somebody comes along sometime in your life and tries to tell you, well, you folks believe uh, that by believing you're saved and belief is just a work, you go to Romans chapter 4 and show them that that's not true. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. But to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Faith is not a work. Faith is the antithesis of work. To him that worketh not. But believes. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is not a work. You say. Where does that faith come from? The Bible tells you. Faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. That penetrates the hearts of people. Then. And. Calls on us to believe. Some of you may be feeling that this morning. Maybe you're feeling uncertain about your faith. Maybe you're feeling uncertain about your salvation. Maybe you've been depending on something instead of on the only one that you can depend on to save you. Then it's time for you today to preach to your soul about salvation. Maybe you'll discover you've been trusting in the wrong thing. But maybe this morning you'll be able to go back in your heart and mind to that time when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and no doubts may have entered in. It's time for you to preach to your soul. I remember the time. I remember the day when I called upon the name of the Lord and He saved me. Doubt, go away. I need my soul to be reminded that God is the only source of my salvation. Preach to our souls then of our expectation of our strength and stability of our salvation and then of our defense. Verse 6. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Now, as a preacher, of course, I've noticed the repetition of this psalm and One of the most frequent uh, criticisms levied levied against preachers is that, uh, you know, they repeat themselves. And they do. They do. So when I see the repetition of this psalm, it reminds me of a simple truth. There is no such thing as once preached, always preached. You know why we repeat things? Because we need to hear things again. Just because we heard it once and say, I've heard that. I don't ever need to hear that again. No, that's not what this Bible is demonstrating for us here. How many times does he say it? Wait on God. Wait only on God. How many times over and over again he said, God is my rock. God is my defense. God is the rock of my strength. And God is my refuge. He says it again and again and again. You see, our soul needs to hear things. And some things it needs to hear a lot. And I don't think it's coincidental that he just heaps up all this stuff about God being our defense. If you read on the rest of the psalm, you'll see it's a common theme in the passage. One of the hardest things to convince our souls that it can do is depend on God to defend us. It's one of the hardest things for us to trust God to do is to be our defense and our refuge. there would be a time of great victory in the life of david when david would slay goliath and shortly after that in first samuel chapter 18 we're told the story of how jonathan's soul clave to the soul of david and he brought him the armor uh, that that mail that they wore uh, up against their skin they they brought him his outward cloak his battle uniform he brought him brought him his sword he brought David his bow and he'd lay him all down at David's feet. Surrendering to him his own right of self-defense and pledging his ultimate loyalty to him. Oh, that Jonathan would have stayed true to that, but he didn't. I don't think he ever took that sword and bow back, but he got another one. And he didn't die fighting for David. He died fighting for the wrong king. For his own position. Fighting for his father Saul. If only he would have stayed true in trusting David. But you see there's something of Jonathan in all of us. The hardest thing for us to trust the Lord with is to be our refuge. Because it will forever be our nature, yours and mine, to defend ourselves. I want to say very plainly this morning, I've, I've studied the Bible now for a long time. And I do not believe that the Bible teaches pacifism, that we must never fight, we must never uh, uh, join the armed forces, or or that we cannot defend ourselves or our families. Uh, we see too many passages where God uh, sets against our enemies, and he uses uh, the armies then to defend others. Uh, there's there's too much of that in the Scripture, but the Bible does remind us that we are primarily set in a spiritual and not a physical conflict. Ephesians chapter six and verse twelve: For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That maybe be hard for some of you to deal with when you go to work tomorrow morning and you deal with that. Boss, it's so cruel, that coworker who's out to get you. It's hard to look past that person and realize there's a spiritual power behind that battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. People are not our enemy. There's a bigger enemy behind them. And he is constantly at work to oppose us and to exalt himself and to advance his own purposes. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Some of you students are going to find that when you go to school tomorrow. Some of you businessmen will find it. There's all sorts of places where you find yourself involved, where it seems like this person is out to get you and you've got to fight them. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 reminds us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. There's a spiritual battle that must be waged in one. We may find ourselves facing cancer, for example. Just go to the big one right off the bat. We call on God to help us and protect us and heal us. We trust in God to defend us and to bring us victory. We trust Him to deliver us from it. Yet we still take chemo. We avail ourselves of all the medical technology that is available to us. Through it all, though, in all of that battle, we understand that because we have called upon the Lord to help us and because we have asked God to to bless us, because we have depended on Him, if God does indeed bring us healing from cancer, Uh, We're not going to thank the chemo. We're going to thank Him. Amen. Because God is the one who gives us these things. And God is the one ultimately who provides that healing from us. We trust God then to deliver us from treacherous plots, from bad decisions, from times of difficulty because we know ultimately God is our defender. And from time to time when we're going to be threatened or we're feeling threatened, and those times increase as we go on, times when we're scared, times when we're afraid, that's a time for us to preach to our soul, God is my rock, God is my refuge. But what if I die, preacher? Well, you know, the Bible tells us the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. (laughs) And that's that great resurrection chapter that reminds us that even death doesn't get the last word in the life of the believer because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yeah, yeah. And to live is Christ and to die is? Thank you all. Sometimes your soul needs to hear that. Sometimes mine does too. We wait in God then in expectation. We wait for Him in support and our strength. We wait only upon Him because of our salvation. We wait only upon Him in our defense. And then as if the psalmist wants to just summarize it all. <laughs> verse 8, trust in Him at all times. You people pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. You see, it would be impossible for the psalmist to describe all of the things that we could conceivably wait on the Lord for and wait only on Him for, that we would keep our mind and attention, the things that we would say to our souls. Soul, you need to wait only on the Lord. You devote yourself to Him. You think of him, you contemplate him, you keep serving him. Come on, soul, get yourself together. The psalmist could not possibly describe all of the reasons why that you personally might need to preach to your soul, or I personally might need to preach to mine. And so we just sum up with this one <laughs> yeah, trust in the Lord at all times. And then he places that great Hebrew word. Selah. Selah means to rest. But it meant more than rest. It meant to pause for reflection. As the great Bible scholar John Phillips used to say it it in his British way. And I can't say it in British. (laughs) I don't speak British. I wish you could have heard him say it. But he'd say, Selah means there, he'd say. What do you think of that? That's the best I got. What do you think of that? Think on that one a little while. Put that one in your head. Put that one in your heart. Take it down deep. Think on that one for a while. Trust only in God. Say to your soul, Trust only in God at all times. At all times. Today might not be your day, but there will be a day when your soul needs a good preaching too. You. Not your face. Not just tell your face to put on a smile and keep on acting like everything's good and fool everybody, but to preach to your soul. And the psalmist gives you a great message to preach to it, Psalm 62. But it all starts with that truth of salvation. You see, if you don't know God, the things I'm talking to to you about today are mostly mysterious. How do you have a relationship with God? Well, you know, Jesus told us a long time ago, you must be born again. I'm not going to preach another sermon to you, but I will tell you this. Jesus told us you must be born again. All of us have a birthday. You know what that date is. Mine's April the 9th, 1959. It's a very specific point in time I was born. I don't remember the hour my mama did, but I've forgotten. I thought maybe she wrote it down in my birth book, but she didn't. But she did for my brother and sister, but mine was. (laughs) Sorry, Mom, I had to put that in. I don't know. I don't know. It's probably on my birth certificate. uh, The point being. Your birthday happened at a specific point in time. And if you've been born again, the same thing took place. The new birth is like the old birth in that sense. It's a moment in time. What happens? You understand the gospel of Jesus Christ that he died on the cross, was buried, rose again. That's the good news of the gospel. That he did so to pay the price for your sins. You believe it. You receive it. You say to God, God, i receive received this for myself. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Savior. And the Bible tells us, he came into his own, Jesus did, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. Can you go back to that moment in time when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Not talking about when you were baptized. Not talking about when you joined the church. Not talking about when you got your first communion. Not talking about any one of a thousand other things. I'm talking about a time when you received Jesus Christ as your own Savior. And you know then, because you can go back to it. You can preach it to my soul. Oh, my soul. I know how I got saved. I know when I got saved. And because I do, I know, I know that the last enemy that's going to be destroyed in my life is death. And that when death claims me, then eternity is going to find me in the presence of my Lord Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You have that assurance today. I ask you to stand together, please.